The reading this morning is from 2 Timothy, chapter 2, and it's on page 1195. That's 2 Timothy, chapter 2, page 1195. You then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things that you've heard me say in the presence of many witnesses entrust to reliable men who will also be qualified to teach others. Endure hardship with us like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No one serving as a soldier gets involved in civilian affairs. He wants to please his commanding officer. Similarly, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not receive the victor's crown unless he competes according to the rules. The hard-working farmer should be the first to receive a share of the crops. Reflect on what I am saying, for the Lord will give you insight into all this. Remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. This is my gospel, for which I am suffering, even to the point of being chained like a criminal. But God's word is not chained. Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they too may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Here is a trustworthy saying, if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. But if we disown him, he will also disown us. If we are faithless, he will remain faithful, for he cannot disown himself. Keep reminding them of these things. Warn them before God against quarrelling about words. It is of no value and only ruins those who listen. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a workman who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. Avoid godless chatter because those who indulge in it will become more and more ungodly. Their teaching will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have wandered away from the truth. They say that the resurrection has already taken place, and they destroy the faith of some. Nevertheless, God's solid foundation stands firm, sealed with this inscription, The Lord knows those who are his, <clears throat> and everyone who confesses the name of the Lord must turn away from wickedness. In a large house, there are articles not only of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay. Some are for noble purposes and some for ignoble. And if a man cleanses himself from the latter, he will be an instrument for noble purposes, made holy and useful to the master and prepared to do any good work. Flee the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness and faith, love and peace, along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments, because you know they produce quarrels, and the Lord's servant must not quarrel. Instead, he must be kind to everyone, able to teach and not resentful. Those who oppose him, he must gently instruct in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth, and that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. This is the word of the Lord. Let's open in a brief word of prayer. Let's pray. 
Lord, thank you. We thank you that you have given us a word which is wonderful, which is inspired, which is God-breathed, and that saves. And so we ask you that you would send your Holy Spirit to give us minds which are attentive and hearts which are submissive to your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. On the 20th of January, 1993, George Bush Sr., on his last day as the President of the United States, sat down and wrote a letter to his successor, Bill Clinton. And this is how it read. Dear Bill, when I walked into this office just now, I felt the same sense of wonder and respect that I felt four years ago. I know you will feel that too. I wish you great happiness here. I never felt the loneliness some presidents have described. There will be very tough times made even more difficult by criticism you may not think is fair. I'm not a very good one to give advice, but just don't let the critics discourage you or push you off course. You will be our president when you read this note. I wish you well. I wish your family well. Your success now is our country's success. I'm rooting hard for you. Good luck, George. It's a gracious letter, wasn't it? George Bush was concerned to wish his successor well and to encourage him to endure, to press on come what may, even in the face of suffering, not to be, as he put it, pushed off course. Around AD 65, Paul the Apostle was spending his last days on earth, in chains, as a prisoner of the Emperor Nero. Now, one of the last things he did was to write a letter, a letter to Timothy, whom he regarded as his successor in the city of Ephesus. Paul was also concerned to wish his successor well and to encourage him to endure, to press on, come what may, even in the face of suffering, not to be pushed off course. So look at chapter 4, verse 5, in the passage that was in the, in the book that's open in front of you. Chapter 4, verse 5. But you, Timothy, keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, discharge all the duties of your ministry, for I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time has come for my departure. And Paul was right. This is the last of his letters that we have, almost like a last will and testament. And as far as we know, he was martyred not long afterwards, likely beheaded. Now, last week we started a four-part series on this letter, on Timothy's, on the letter that Paul wrote to Timothy, when Tim preached for us on chapter 1. And Paul's message in chapter 1 is, Timothy, guard the gospel, do not be ashamed. Guard the gospel, do not be ashamed. Now, given that challenge that he puts in front of Timothy, we now come to chapter 2. Now put yourself in Paul's shoes. You're in chains, in prison, probably in a hole in the ground. You've been through your pre-trial, and you know what the outcome of your final hearing is very, very likely to be, namely your execution. So that means you won't be able to return to visit the church family in Ephesus who is so near to you and so dear to you. So it's up to Timothy. You hope that he can come and see you, but you know that may never happen. So you need to prepare him to take that ministry forward. And so you sit down and you write him a letter. 
And in the first part of the letter, you encourage him, guard the gospel, don't be ashamed. But he's a reluctant leader. And he's more inclined to avoid conflict than to look for it. And you know from personal experience that guarding the gospel and not being ashamed will entail hardship, and you know it will mean that he and his congregation will suffer. So you're sitting there, and you've got your pen poised, and you're at the beginning of this section on endurance. What do you say? How do you encourage him to endure and not to be pushed off course? What does he need to know to be able to endure under suffering? So that's what we'll look at this morning. But before we do, I just want to say this chapter is actually very, very reassuring for us today. I found it reassuring because, you see, I have children, and they are believers. Many of you have children and grandchildren who are believers. Our single friends in this church care about and often care for our children. There's a lot you can say about St. Mary's, but one thing is for sure, our children are precious to us. So I'm sure it resonates with you, as it does with me when Paul, fretting over Timothy in the beginning of the letter, says, my dear son, night and day I constantly remember you in my prayers, because he knows what he faces. It resonates because my generation is probably the last one in the Western world for whom enduring for the gospel was easy. It really was. Let's be honest. Compared to what my children face, and compared to what their children, God willing, one day will face, for us in God's mercy, it was a walk in the park with little sacrifice and little suffering. Don't you agree? So wouldn't it be good to know how to guide our children when they, like Timothy, are faced with the suffering that false teachers in the church and an increasingly anti-Christian world will undoubtedly bring. That's what we'll look at this morning. Your endurance for the gospel is anchored in three things. It's anchored in Christ, which he covers in verses 1 to 13. It's anchored in the Word, which he covers in verses 14 to 19. And it's anchored in holiness. Christ, the Word, and in holiness. And we'll look at each of those in turn. So firstly, it's anchored in Christ. So what Paul does is he tackles Timothy's major worry right from the start. And it's almost as if he's thinking, Timothy, if you believe that you don't have the ability, if you don't have the resolve, if you don't have the strength to endure for the gospel in the face of suffering, if you believe that, you are absolutely right. Because you don't. None of us do. That's Paul's message. That's the subtext behind verse 1. You then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. He's not saying, exercise your strength in Christ's grace. He's not saying that. He's saying, you don't have the strength. It can only come from Christ. So some other translations put it a bit more clearly. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus, not by your own strength, but by the grace that is in Christ. Now, we know that we can only be accepted by God through grace. We can't earn our way into heaven no matter who we are and no matter how good we think we are. We cannot be good enough. We cannot be perfect. If you don't know that, you don't believe that, you need to take that on board. We can't earn our way there. 
So we know that we need the grace of Christ to save us, but we also need the grace of Christ to sustain us, to enable us to endure. He's saying that the strength we need to withstand persecution and suffering, the resolve to endure for the gospel, will only be found in Christ, not in your knowledge, not in your maturity, and not in your strength of character. Only in Christ. And what Paul then does is he takes that and he expands on how that grace-sourced strength must be applied. And he says it's in two ways. Firstly, by faithfully passing on the truth. And secondly, by diligently serving the Lord. So verse 2. And these things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to reliable men who will be qualified to teach others. Endure hardship with us. And the exact wording there is suffer with us. Suffer with us like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No one serving as a soldier gets involved in civilian affairs. He wants to please his commanding officer. Similarly, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not receive the victor's crown unless he competes according to the rules. The hard-working farmer should be the first to receive a share of the crops. Reflect on what I am saying, for the Lord will give you insight into all of this. Now, what he's just said obviously applies to Timothy, right? That's who he's directing it to. Paul's giving Timothy two responsibilities. One, care for the church in Ephesus, and two, ensure that you pass the truth on to other reliable men who can teach it. Paul emphasizes it using three metaphors. He uses the metaphor of a soldier, of a farmer, and of an athlete. But he has basically the same point with all three. Join in whatever suffering is necessary. Don't be distracted. Work hard, work faithfully, work diligently at proclaiming the gospel. That's his message that is directed to Timothy. But it also applies equally to the leadership of the church today, to our bishops, to Clive, and to the rest of the ministry leadership team at St. Mary's. They have inherited this same responsibility. They are called to work hard, to work faithfully, to work diligently at proclaiming the gospel. It's directed at them. But it also applies to you and I. We also share the responsibility of ensuring that the truth is guarded, that it's faithfully passed on, that it's diligently proclaimed. If nothing else, for the sake of our children. We also have a role to play. As Paul puts it in chapter 1, we have a role to play in guarding the good gospel that has been entrusted to us with the help of the Holy Spirit. So that's not a responsibility we can just assume will be taken care of by others and delegated upwards. We do share in it. But for all that, Paul's main point, which all of that is built on and which all of that depends on, is that foundational statement in verse 1, which undergirds everything. Be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Charles Spurgeon was one of the most gifted preachers in the 19th century, and his productivity was ludicrous. He was well known for it. It was legendary. He preached up to 10 times a week. I have no idea how he did that. He cared for over 5,000 members in his church. He wrote numerous books, periodicals, magazines, and other publications, and on the side, he established an orphanage for hundreds of children. And the missionary David Livingston, who was no slouch himself, 
once went up to Charles Spurgeon and said, how do you manage to do two men's work in a single day? And Spurgeon, thinking about Christ, replied, Mr. Livingston, you have forgotten there are two of us. <laughs> it's God's grace that enabled Paul to accomplish everything he did, not his own strength. And that's what he wants Timothy to have confidence in. It's God's grace. It's Christ's grace. But that's not all. Because he raises something else we can have confidence in. So look at verse 8. Remember Jesus Christ raised from the dead, descended from David. This is my gospel. Now Paul obviously doesn't think that Timothy has forgotten who Christ is. Right? But he wants to ensure that Timothy keeps Christ central in everything he does. So he refers to Christ by name in this letter 13 times. So look at chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. The promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. Chapter 1, verse 2. Christ Jesus, our Lord. Chapter 1, verse 9. Give us in Christ Jesus, and so on and so forth. Christ is central to this letter as to all his other letters. But chapter 2, verse 8, is the only time in the entire letter that he refers to him as Jesus Christ. Every other time, it's Christ Jesus. Why does he do that? It's subtle, but it's important because he's trying to get you to stop and to pay attention. His name, Jesus, is derived from a Hebrew word that means Savior. His title, Christ, means anointed. Jesus, Savior raised from the dead, Christ, anointed descent of David. Paul, in one crisp gospel phrase, says, remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. He's saying, remember the God-man. Remember he's the resurrected one who has secured your salvation, and remember he's the promised king who comes to inaugurate his kingdom. And he's saying, remember it because, second half of verse 8, this is my gospel, for which I am suffering even to the point of being chained like a criminal. But God's word is not chained. Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they too may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Endure, Paul says, because it's by proclaiming God's unchained, transforming word that the elect will be saved to a glorious eternity with the anointed Savior. That's what he wants him to know. It's that gospel we can have confidence in because God's word is not chained. Sermon, Spurgeon echoed this in a sermon that he preached in 1886. Suppose a, a number of persons were to take it into their heads that they had to defend a lion, a full-grown king of beasts. There he is in the cage, and here come all the soldiers of the army to fight for him. Well, I should suggest to them, if they would not object and feel that it was humbling to them, that they should kindly stand back and open the door and let the lion out. I believe that would be the best way of defending him, for he would take care of himself. The best apology for the gospel is to let the gospel out. Never mind about defending Deuteronomy or the whole of the Pentateuch. Preach Jesus Christ and him crucified. Let the lion out and see who will dare to approach him. That's Paul's point. God's word isn't chained, so just get out of the way and let it do its work. You can have confidence in the Word. So we can have confidence in grace, we can have confidence in the Word, but that's still not all. 
Because not only can we have confidence in those things, we can also have confidence in God's very nature. So look at verse 11. Here's a trustworthy saying. If we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we disown him, he will disown us. If we are faithless, he will remain faithful, for he cannot disown himself. It's verse 13 that kind of catches you, isn't it? So it's, it's all clear up to then. So if we died with him, we will also live with him. Yes, because I'm spiritually united to Christ in his death, I'm also united to him in my life now and through into eternity. Makes sense. If we endure, we will also reign with him. Yes, if I persevere to the end with Christ, I will be with him in glory. Makes sense. If we disown him, he will disown us. Yes, a reminder of the warning in Scripture that unbelief, the persistent rejection of Christ, will result in being rejected. Think of Judas. Makes sense. If we are faithless, he will remain faithful, for he cannot disown himself. Sorry? Doesn't that contradict what he just said? Doesn't he will remain faithful contradict he will disown us? No, it doesn't. All Paul is saying is that while some may completely reject Christ and therefore be rejected by him, that doesn't mean that the faithful who sometimes lapse will also be rejected. So, for example, Judas disowned Christ and he was disowned. Peter was faithless three times and he was restored. The point he's making is that you can endure with confidence, even if you sometimes fail, even if you sometimes fail, because your security is held in the very nature of God. It's a staggering thought. Your security, the eternal security of the Christian, is centered in the very nature of God. He can't help but be faithful. You're secured by the nature of a God who can't deny the promise he made because to do that would be to deny himself. What did Jesus say? My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. Least of all they themselves. So that's the first anchor for our endurance. It's Christ. We've got total confidence because of his grace, because of his unchained word, and because of his very nature. Our second anchor is the word. His endurance is anchored in the word. So Paul comes back to the word in verse 14. Keep reminding them of these things. Warn them before God against quarreling about words. It is of no value and only ruins those who listen. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a workman who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. Us evangelicals have a real knack for making the secondary thing the main thing and the main thing the secondary thing. So a lifetime ago, I was at a big congregational Sunday lunch which involved lots of food, fellowships, sunshine, and swimming. Sadly, I usually have to make do with the food and the fellowship nowadays. Except today, we do have sunshine. Eight of us were sat around a table enjoying a really lovely meal, right? When an ardent Baptist started talking to an ardent Peter Baptist about the last thing they should have been discussing, namely, baptism. 
things eventually got so heated that within 20 minutes, six of us had left the table purportedly to get a drink or a salad or a second helping or anything, frankly. <laughs> and only the two remained, still going at it, hammer and tong, blissfully unaware of the fact that the rest of us were on the far side of the swimming pool, sitting apart from them. Baptism is important. It's really important. Of course it is. But it's not the main thing. And if we let the secondary thing become the main thing, what scripture and what history and what experience tells us time and time again is that the main thing then diminishes. It becomes secondary. It becomes negotiable and it gets displaced. And before you know it, that secondary thing is now the main thing, the all-important thing, the touchstone of all that is right and is true and is acceptable. And the main thing originally is gone. It seems that's what happened to some of them in Ephesus. So verse 16, avoid godless chatter because those who indulge in it will become more and more ungodly. That heated discussion over that important topic of baptism was godless chatter. Their teaching will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus who've wandered away from the truth. They say that the resurrection has already taken place and they destroy the faith of some. Hymenaeus and Philetus got so absorbed in something secondary and we don't know what it was, that it became primary, and it, not the resurrection, became a touchstone of the truth. So this is a warning, right? Obviously, it's a warning to ensure that we handle God's word correctly. But encouragingly, Paul doesn't only give a warning, he also gives a promise. He gives a promise that even if we have leaders who have departed from the faith, which thankfully we don't have here, but even if we did have leaders which have departed from the faith, we can still endure because our endurance is not dependent on flawed leaders. It's dependent on the fact, verse 19, that nevertheless, God's solid foundation stands firm, sealed with this inscription, the Lord knows those who are his. The foundation of the gospel stands firm regardless of what men may do. And engraved indelibly on that foundation are these words, the Lord knows those who are his. That's the encouragement. He knows you whom he has kept for himself and you are secure, even if your leader is not. So to endure, we need the word. We need to ensure that we and our leaders handle God's word correctly, keeping the main thing the main thing. And we also have the assurance that he knows those who are his, even if the leaders fall by the wayside. Like Isaiah says in chapter 55, my word will not return to me empty. It will accomplish its purpose, regardless of who stands in the way. That's our second anchor, God's word. And then Paul starts talking about crockery. Verse 20, in a large house... There are articles, not only of gold and silver, articles, vestment, uh, vessels, containers, crockery, but also of wooden clay. Some are for noble purposes and some are for ignoble. If a man cleanses himself from the latter, he will be an instrument for noble purposes, made holy, useful to the master, and prepared to do any good work. So, and there is a word that's usually translated as so, just there, I'm not sure why the NIV leaves it out, because it actually helps us to realize that the, the verses go together, right? So, flee the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord 
out of a pure heart. He's not really talking about crockery, clearly. It's just a metaphor. He's talking about the fact that our endurance for the gospel is anchored in the third anchor, which is holiness. It's anchored in holiness. That's our third anchor. And he draws on something that we all know well. So in your house, in your home, there are certain items, containers, which you put to less honorable use, as he puts it. Think of buckets, wheelie bins, and old jars of paint cleaner. Then there are items you put to more honorable use, that fancy crockery for the guests. And woe betide you if you get those two mixed up. <laughs> the large house that Paul refers to is the wider Christian community, which has always been a mixed bag, to say the least. And Paul then takes that metaphor, and he applies it in verse 21. And he says, if a man cleanses himself from the latter, he will be an instrument for noble purposes made holy, useful to the master, prepared to do any good work. He's contrasting, he's contrasting false teachers with faithful teachers. Noble vessels with ignoble vessels. If you want to be faithful and useful to God, and who doesn't? If you want to be faithful and useful to God, then surprisingly, Paul says, cleanse yourself. Now, this obviously is all under the umbrella of verse 1, right? It's all by grace. So we don't have the ability to do this on our own. But Paul doesn't think he needs to emphasize that caveat here like I do to avoid being shouted at afterwards. He's just straight in there. It feels almost like it's a dressing down, right? So look at verse 22. Flee the evil desires of youth. A better way of putting that is flee youthful desires, because he's not talking about sexual desires. He's talking about immature Christian character, right? He's saying flee arrogance, flee impatience, flee harshness, flee contentiousness. But instead, pursue righteousness, pursue faith, pursue love, pursue peace. Call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Avoid foolish and stupid arguments. Look at verse 24. Don't quarrel. Be kind to everyone. Teach. Don't be resentful. Gently instruct your opponents. To summarize it another way, be holy as I am holy, says the Lord. Why? Well, because then, hopefully, verse 25, God will grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. Those are very strong words, but they're very true words. Hopefully the opponents will turn. Hopefully the false teachers will turn. Once they're instructed in the working, and the working of an unchained word starts to take place in their hearts, hopefully then God will grant them the gift of repentance, and hopefully then they may turn and be saved. That's what he's saying. It occurred to me that Paul doesn't actually explicitly focus on prayer in this entire letter. In fact, he only mentions it once, right in the beginning. I constantly remember you in my prayers when he's talking to Timothy. But it's an obvious implication for us when we think about this passage and when we think about Clive and the rest of the ministry leadership team here at St. Mary's. Now, I'm not part of that team, so it's not self-serving of me to speak on their behalf. They haven't asked me to, but I will anyway. With this question, 
Do you pray for them? So you all want strong biblical leadership, right? That's what we want. We all want caring, loving discipleship. We all want sermons that are great spiritual feasts. But do you pray for them? More to the point, do you pray for their holiness, for their Christ-likeness? Do you pray that God will enable them, as Paul says, to cleanse themselves, to become instruments for noble purposes, made holy, useful to the Master, and prepared to do any good work? Do you pray for them? Robert Murray McShane was a pastor in Dundee during the 1830s, and he once said, my people's greatest need, my people's greatest need is for my personal holiness. Right? And he was right. He wasn't being presumptuous or self-absorbed. He's echoing what Paul says here in Timothy. So we often talk about the wise things that our team of, of leaders do and the unwise things that they do, about how they use their giftedness, if you like. But our greatest need isn't for their giftedness. Our greatest need is for their holiness. Can you imagine the impact if they were twice as Christ-like as they are now in this church? If you want leadership that's twice as strong and biblical as it is now, if you want discipleship that's twice as caring, if you want sermons that change you in your seats, then above all, pray for the personal holiness of Clive, Caroline, Rob, Tim, Steve, John Ellison, the wardens, the staff, and everyone else serving here at St. Mary's. Pray for them. And also for me. I'm sorry if that was slightly self-serving. You will have to forgive me. We were in Wales a week ago for a wedding, and we took some time to go for a walk along the Pembrokeshire coastal path. It was mostly sunny, but not entirely. It seems to be a favorite spot for climbers, because there's quite, a, quite an extreme cliff, and a number of them were there, and they were using ropes, and they were using tackle, and working their way up the cliff, and from a distance it looked pretty dangerous, as it always does, but when we got nearby, what we saw was that they were securely held because there were these massive metal anchors driven into the rock above the cliffs next to the pathway, and that's what their ropes were tied to all the way along. And that's a fairly good picture of what Paul has given us in this chapter. We're encouraged to endure. We're encouraged to keep going, even in the middle of suffering, not because of anything in us, but because of how we're anchored. We're anchored in Christ we can have confidence in his grace, in his word, and in his very nature. We're anchored in the word, an unchained word, and we're anchored in grace-dependent holiness. And we can be confident and we can endure because of those things. Let's close in prayer. Lord, thank you. Thank you that we can look to you for everything that we need to endure in the gospel, to your grace to your unchained word, and to the holiness that you impart into our lives. We pray that you will help us to always draw comfort and strength from you, even in these most difficult of times. And we ask this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.